Today's scripture reading is taken from Hosea 11, verses 1 to 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. So sorry about that. Israel will reap the whirlwind. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a voucher is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, My God, we Israel know you. Israel has spun the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They make kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burned against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flour. If it were to you, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the king and princess shall soon wreath because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my loss by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it. But the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. This is the word of God. Amen. Thanks, waiting. Good morning. Can I just say that today's singing was extra gao. I don't know if you all felt the same way. And before, before we dig in, just a couple of admin things. Um, some of you have shared with the the team at the, in the office that you're having some difficulties trying to make sense of the book of Hosea, how to apply it in our context, and especially in the, in the sweep of the whole of the na- Bible narrative. So the pastoral team has uploaded a bunch of videos and articles on our church website that have been a blessing to the pastors and I in understanding Hosea. We hope that it will be a blessing to you as well. The other thing is that you, you'll notice that in your outline, I've added some reflection questions to help us reflect and to apply the passage. Uh, you can go through them on your own after the service, or better still, discuss them with whoever you're having lunch with after the service, or in your small groups, in your CG. Uh, as you look at your outline, my wife has told me to try to get you all the panic less. There are six, yes, there are six points in your outline, but 
Don't panic. We have got no sub points. So what you see is what you get. And she timed me yesterday. And if I don't speak too slowly, we should end on time. Let's begin in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all the different messages that your word has for us. We thank you for the different situations that we come from. And we ask this morning that you quieten our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes, that we may see wondrous things in your law. Where we need to rebuke, rebuke us. Where we need to be encouraged, encourage us. Where we need to be exhorted, exhort us. May the beauty of Christ be made evident in your passage today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been having a headache for a week and have difficulty concentrating. You've had headaches before and so you do what you normally do. You pop a couple of Panadol and you wait for it to fade away. But the headache keeps coming back. And so after much nagging from your family, you head down to the local GP. She refers you for some tests. Nothing to worry about, she says, just to rule out that there's nothing more serious. Except when the results come back, it is serious, very serious. A grade 4 glioblastoma, she calls it. Brain cancer is what everyone else calls it. And it's serious, very serious. I hope I got the medical terms right, but the question is how seriously do we treat sin? Do we treat it like it's a minor headache? Or we, do we treat it with the seriousness that we would treat cancer? In this morning's passage, Hosea is listing out for the Israelites a whole list of sins that they've been committing against God. And as he lists these sins, he's asking them, pleading them to take sin seriously, to repent and to turn back to God. So I'd like to start this morning's sermon by posing the same question to us that God posed to the Israelites. Would we take sin seriously? Today's passage is a diagnostic tool for us to examine our hearts and to ask where we are sinning because it's not a matter of if, but how we are sinning. And my prayer for us is that as God uses His Word and His Spirit to reveal sin in each of our lives, that we would listen to His Word and take sin seriously because all sin is evil. That's the first point for this morning. All sin is evil and God remembers every sin, small and big, public and private, conscious and unconscious. But before we go on, let, let's back up a little. How do you decide what is sin in the first place? How do we decide what is good and what is evil? In today's society, it's almost taboo to say that there's an objective right and wrong. It's become almost intolerant to say that something is black or white, much more politically correct to try and grey over everything. What's wrong for you might be okay for me. Hosea cuts through this for us by making crystal clear what sin is. Look at the, first, look at the second half of 8 verse 1. What the Israelites are doing, Hosea describes it as transgressing the covenant, rebelling against God's law. You see, sin is doing what God tells us not to do or not doing what God tells us to do. When we're deciding what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, God's Word must be the reference point that we use to decide 
what is good and what is evil. And make no mistake, sin is evil. In Hosea, God has described sin, disobeying His word, in these ways, evil, treachery, rebellion, villainy, insolence, corruption, adultery, shame. Sin is disobeying God and all sin, no matter how big or how small, is evil. All sin is evil and God remembers all our sin, every last one. Look at the second half of 8 verse 13. God will remember all our iniquity, even the sins we can't remember, even the secret sins we thought no one else could see, the ones we've been doing, we've been trying so hard to hide from everyone. So, continuing the theme of cancer, my father-in-law is a radiation oncologist, which I think, I think, means he uses radiation to cure people, to help cure people of cancer. So, Imagine this with me. Imagine if instead of aiming to destroy 100% of the cancer, one fine day he decided to lower his standards and for no good reason, targeted just 50% of the cancer. Mr. Tan, looks like we've done a good job here. 50% of the cancer is gone. I think my work is done. I think, I have a feeling Mr. Tan wouldn't be too pleased. We wouldn't be too pleased. Mr. Tan wouldn't be too pleased if even 90%, 99% of the job is done because when it comes to cancer, you don't target for most of it to be gone. You target for all of it to be gone and you shouldn't stop till it's totally gone. That's the way we need to look at sin. All sin is evil. God remembers all our sin and so we, so we should not rest until it's totally gone. We need to ask ourselves, is there any sin in our lives that we try to pretend is not sin? I was once talking with someone who'd been arrested for cheating people and I was trying to process with him the kind of thinking that had led to him being in the situation that he was in the first place. And whenever the conversation, conversation steered towards another bit of potential criminal activity that he was involved in, I would ask him, hey, do you think this is legal? And no matter what it was, his answer was always this, sir, you cannot say not white, it's not black, it's grey. Sir, it's not, cannot say right, cannot say wrong. It's just okay lah. That's how he rationalized criminal activity to himself. And isn't that how we sometimes rationalize sins to ourselves when we're walking in the black, but we tell ourselves, we try to kid ourselves that we're still in the grain, so it's still okay. How about those sins in our lives that we know are wrong, but try to hide anyway? We do a good job of putting up a front, acting like everything's okay. Some of us may even end up hiding the sin from ourselves. We become so good at convincing others that we've convinced ourselves that there's nothing wrong. This morning, God is calling all of us to shine light into the dark corners of our lives and to repent of all sin, every single one of them. In our passage, Hosea is shining a light on three particular types of sins that we often overlook. And the first sin is the one where we tell ourselves that the ends justify the means. The, the sins that we tell us are okay, even though they get us the outcome that we want. Look at me at the first half of 8 verse 4. 8 verse 4. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. Hosea is talking about the sin of Israel's 
Kings, at the time Hosea was writing, the political situation in Israel can only be described as treacherous and bloody. During the time of Hosea, Israel had a fair number of kings, and almost every king rose to power by murdering the previous one. Hosea describes it in 7 verse 7, all of them are hot as an oven and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen and none of them calls upon me. Hosea is describing the political situation in Israel and he's describing the palace court as an oven heated by treachery, betrayal and murder, covered in guilt and blood. The king of Israel, as most of us would know, was meant to be chosen by God and to be God's representative to His people. But you look at this and you can see very clearly that God wasn't doing the choosing and He certainly wasn't being represented. The kings were not listening to God but taking matters into their own hands. They weren't obeying God but they were certainly getting the outcome they wanted, the outcome that they dreamed of. They had the throne for themselves, reaching the very pinnacle of success, the very top of the corporate, of the whatever ladder that they've been climbing, and the power, and they were enjoying the power, wealth, and status that came with the position. Have we ever tried to downplay sin in order to get what we want? Have we ever sinned but told ourselves that it's okay because it's the outcome that we wanted, because it's the outcome that we needed. I shouldn't have spoken to him or about him like that, but it resulted in him doing the right thing. I know I shouldn't have cheated on the test, but I needed to get good marks. I shouldn't have joined in the gossip, but I wanted to be part of the group. I shouldn't have exaggerated my resume, but I really need the job. I should have been more present with my family. Hey, but we really need that promotion. When we're in the heat of the moment, with our eyes on the prize, especially when we think about how much we've invested, how much we've sacrificed, it's so easy to let something slip, a small compromise in order to get what we want. My friends, let's remember that the ends never justify the means because all sin is evil and God remembers every sin. The second type of sin Hosea highlights for us is similar to the first. It's a type of sin that seems like the wise thing to do. Look at me at verses 9 to 10. 8 verse 9 to 10. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the kings and princes shall soon ride because of the tribute. If you're having difficulty making sense of this, let's, let's have some context. Israel at the time of Hosea is at best a medium power. The thing is, they're sandwiched, in terms of their location, they're sandwiched between a big power to, their south, to the south and this massive power that's constantly growing and eating everyone else up to the north. Look at the map on the slide. So, I'm going to try and do this. Okay, to the south, you see this is Egypt. This is not all of, e not all of Egypt, but some of Egypt. And, this, and they are a big power. To the north is Assyria, this green color thing, thing, country. It's a massive power and it's just growing and growing and growing and slaughtering and conquering and eating up more and more territory. So where is Israel? Do, you, do, you, do we see Israel? Israel is just here. 
This is Israel. A medium-sized power that just looks tiny compared to the massive power to the north and the big power to the south. During Hosea's time, Assyria was not just knocking on Israel's door. They'd kicked the door down and started to take the house apart, slowly taking bits of Israel for itself, cutting off parts of Israel's population for themselves. Look at this second map um, of Israel at 733 BC, which is, exactly, which is during the time of Hosea, during the time of our passage. You can see that Assyria has already, do, these, these bits are the bits that Assyria has already started to carve out from Israel for themselves. Now, if you were the king of, now with this in mind, if you were the king of, Is, of Israel, and this massive power, this massive superpower Assyria has invaded you, started to take your land and your people, you face the very real possibility of your country just being completely destroyed. And you, of course, would be slaughtered to make a point, what would you do? Would you trust God and listen to His call to you to repent of your sins and turn back to live with, you, with Him as your king? Or would you continue to trust in yourself to be king over your own life and take matters in your own hands? The kings of Israel chose to take matters into their own hands, ignoring God's call to turn back to Him. That's what verses 9 to 10 are about. Ephraim is another name for Israel. And Israel has chosen to try to take matters into their own hands. They've gone up to the superpowers of, Is of Assyria and Egypt and tried to get their allegiance by paying tribute to the kings, hiring lovers, hiring allies, walking by sight and not by faith. And if you think about it, paying tribute trying to buy allies, especially the people who are at your doorstep and have already started to invade you, it does seem like the wise thing to do. Social norms, you might say, something else that anyone, any other wise person in your position would do. But Hosea tells us that that's not the point. When we're deciding what to do, we always need to start by asking ourselves, are we trusting God and listening to what He says? When the threat is right at our doorstep, when we think that this is the end and our life is going to change as we know it, do we cling to our own wisdom? Or do we trust God and start by asking Him what He would want us to do? Some specific scenarios for us to think about. Exams are coming. I realize exams for youth are always coming. We could be the ones facing the exams or our children could be the ones facing the exams and we feel unprepared, or what is more likely, we feel that our, ch our child, our children are unprepared, what do we do? Do we continue to trust God and ask Him what He would want us to do? Or do we take matters into our own hands, putting God for one side just for this exam period? He would understand after all, skipping Sunday service and small group and quiet times so that there's more time to study. It does seem like the wise thing to do, lack of time, so make more time. But before we decide what to do, the question really should be, are we trusting God and asking Him what He would want us to do, even if it does not seem to make sense to us? Or maybe we're in trouble and the consequences are looming. My life as I know it is going to be ruined. What am I going to do? 
Do I listen to God to own up to the mistake that I made, repent, face the consequences, and seek forgiveness? Or do I take matters into my own hands, doing whatever my gut tells me to do, whatever I need to do to get myself out of the mess, lying, hiding, manipulating, dragging everyone and anyone down with me so that I can hide what I've done? God tell, calls on us to trust in Him rather than ourselves, to listen to the counsel of His Word rather than the counsel of the world or the counsel of our deceitful hearts. Everyone else may do it. Everyone else may be telling us to do it. But really, does God want us to do it? Trusting in ourselves instead of God, my friends, is sin. And all sin is evil. And God remembers all sin. The third and final sin is a caution to us that we can appear to be Christian, doing, do, we can do all the things Christians are supposed to do, say all the things that Christians are supposed to say, and yet still be deep in sin. Look at verses 11 to 13. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange Thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. A lot of stuff to go through. Let's try to unpack it verse by verse. Let's look at verse 11 first. God has told the Israelites previously that the, there was only one place they were to offer sacrifices. You can see this in Deuteronomy 12, 13 to 14. And He also told them that there were, between, there were under no circumstances to be any man-made idols. Again, you can see this in Deuteronomy 5, verse 8. Oh, you can see what's happening here. Instead of one place to worship, they had multiple altars. And they'd also decided to follow the religions around them by worshipping man-made idols. 8 verses 4 to 5 tells us, with their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. We can see what's happening, right? In some really twisted way, the Israelites were still trying to pretend to be religious, offering sacrifices to God, following some of the laws, but they'd integrated other elements of religions into the way they worship God, giving in to the temptation, instead of being a holy people different from everyone else, they gave in to the, to the temptation to be just like everyone else. Let's look at verse 12. The Israelites appeared to be religious, but as we said just now, it was just a show going through the motions. God's law, which was supposed to be the thing that guided their entire lives, we, we learned this in our sermons in Deuteronomy, that God's law was supposed to be on their hearts, taught diligently, talked about when they sat, when they walked, when they lay down, when they rose. That law had become strange to them, such that even if Hosea were to write down God's law 10,000 times, the Israelites wouldn't recognize it foreign gods had become familiar to them, while God's laws had become foreign. Which is why we read in verse 13 that the Lord does not accept them. God does not accept their sacrifices. God is rejecting His people. To everyone else, the Israelites seem religious. After all, they still held altars and they were still offering sacrifices. But God rejected them because they were just pretending to worship Him. They just wanted to appear like they were having a relationship with God, 
rather than truly have a relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, when, when we think about how to worship God and how to do church, do we strive to do things God's way or our way? When we do Christian things, do we do them out of a true relationship with God or out of just wanting to appear like we have a relationship with God? So when Jess and I were still dating, I, it took me quite a long time to try and figure out how to buy flowers for her and what kind of flowers she liked. I remember there was this flower shop in Clementi that I used to go to and whenever I went to the shop, they asked, sir, what kind of flowers would you like to buy? And I would just look at her blankly and say, I have no idea. Can you help me buy, can you help me choose the flowers? And this went on for a while until one day I decided that I would be a strong, independent man and instead of asking them to help me choose the flowers, I would choose the flowers for myself. So I went around the shop looking at all the different flowers, trying to subtly look at how much the flowers cost. And, and I chose this yellow flower, which looked pretty, pretty, and if I'm being honest, was fairly cost-effective for the NS man that I was. So I bought a few of these flowers, and I proudly gave them to Jess, and this is the flower that I gave. For those who don't know, these are chrysanthemums and Jess partially wanted me to put up the flowers so that you guys would learn from my mistakes. And as most of you all know, uh, chrysanthemums tend to be of the funeral variety, except what's even worse is Jess went to do some helpful research for me. What's sent to funerals are the white chrysanthemums, yellow chrysanthemums are even worse. Jess tells me that the yellow ones signify, and I quote, neglected love, and sorrow. <laughs> okay, in my defense, I knew that chrysanthemums were either for funerals or to make tea, but I didn't know that these yellow flowers were chrysanthemums. And the best part, to crown off my achievement, Jess's mom found this really, really funny, and so she put these flowers smack in the middle of the house. And if, you want, if, you want, if you're looking for a long-lasting flower, Chrysanthemums, these chrysanthemums took more, refused to die for more than two weeks. <laughs> okay, so, so the point is this. Jess found the whole episode funny because it wasn't the flowers per se that were important to her. It was what she knew the flowers were meant to express. And it's, and it's the same thing with God. God teaches us how to relate to Him, how to express our love and our worship to Him. But ultimately, it's not the flowers He's looking for. 6 verse 6, a couple of chapters earlier, puts it very, very well when God says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So don't get me wrong, God does give us clear instructions on how to worship Him, the same way that Jess eventually realized that she needed to give me step-by-step -step instruction in terms of what flowers I could, what flowers I should not buy, what kinds of flowers she liked. And so, now that I know what she likes, I cannot just act blur and buy her a bouquet of xiao tie lan. But the point is this, even, after, even if I follow her instructions to the T, even if I bought her the biggest and most expensive bouquet that the flower shop has to offer, it wouldn't matter one bit if I'm also, if I'm also cheating on her or if I'm sleeping 
to someone else. Brothers and sisters, Hosea asks us the question, are we giving God flowers while sleeping with someone else? Do we do Christian things on a Sunday while just ignoring God's commands for the rest of the week? Do we tell ourselves, tell others that we are so in love with God while in our heart we're in love with something else, with someone else in the world? Do we use the language of intimacy with God while our hearts are really far, far away? The scariest verse for me in this whole passage is 8 verse 2. Even when the Israelites cry out, which is in red, My God, we, Israel, know you. Even when Israel uses the language of intense intimacy, language that's specially reserved for their special relationship with God, only God's people are allowed to address God as my God. Only God's special people are allowed to say, We know you. But even when they use that language, God is not pleased but he's offended because he desires steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of him rather than burnt offerings. God is calling us to examine our relationship with him this morning. We may, we may be doing things that seem like we're having a relationship with him, but do we have a relationship with him? Are our prayers and our songs from our hearts or are they just from our lips? When asked to share about our week at CG, are we authentic or are we superficial? Put it another way, when was the last time we allowed God's Word to change something in our lives? As a Christian, God calls us to live lives for Him, moulded by His Word. Is our church a church that applies God's Word? So many of the letters in the New Testament are about unity in the church, forgiving each other and building each other up. We have to ask ourselves, are we a church that is listening to God's Word? Are we a church that is getting more and more united as we should be if we are listening to God's Word? Or are we getting more and more divided? As I was praying and working through this passage, I became so convicted about how much I identified with this point how I identify with the Israelites. And this hit me again when we were singing that wonderful song from Psalm 23 that talks about how the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. talks about a confidence we have that His goodness shall lead me home. And as I was singing, I just, it just hit me that I, I used to be like that. I used to have so much zeal in God. I used to trust in Him. I wouldn't worry about anything else. I just go, if God says we should do it, we should do it. But as, as I was preparing for this message, it just hit me that I've lost so much of my confidence and joy in God and His Word. Where there was once enthusiasm, now there's jadedness. Where there was once trust, there is now so much uncertainty in my heart. I spend so much, I spend a lot of my time reading and teaching God's Word, but caught up in all my busyness and just the clutter of getting involved in so many things, getting involved in so many conversations, though I spend a lot of time reading and studying so that I can teach God's Word, for me, I realized that I'd forgotten to allow myself to be taught by God's Word. I hadn't taken the time or the energy to let God's Word into my own heart to change me or to listen to 
that still small voice, the Holy Spirit's promptings and convictings in my life. I wonder this morning how many of us can identify with my experience. For how many of us is God's Word nudging us ever so gently, reminding us of how much faith we used to have and how practical or realistic or even jaded we've become. And a word for those of us who have loved ones deep in sin. I serve in a youth ministry and and, and we the leaders care so much for each of the youth. And so when we see a youth that we think, that we suspect is, is walking in sin or not walking with God, it's so tempting for us to try to solve the problem by just getting them to do more Christian things, to attend church regularly, to come to church on time, to serve in church, sing louder during worship, come for youth group, do quiet times, anything that will reassure ourselves that this person is saved, that this person is a Christian. But really what what Hosea 6.6 tells us is the person doesn't need more Christian things. This person needs Christ. And we need to be careful not to confuse the two because we may end up allowing ourselves, allowing our loved ones to hide their sin or worse still, we could end up allowing them to think that they can continue down their path of sin as long as they're hiding it behind the cloak of doing Christian things and pretending to be a Christian. And so we come to our last point. We've learned that all sin is evil and God remembers all sin. We've gone through some specific sins we tend to overlook and we end by learning that all sin is evil and must be punished. Throughout chapter 8 and indeed throughout the whole book of Hosea are all the curses that God says will happen to Israel if they continue down their path of blatant, unrepentant disobedience. The problem is not just that they've sinned, it's that they don't care that they've sinned and they pretend like they're not sinning, they are unrepentant and they are blatant. In chapter 8 alone, the predictions of punishment from God in response to the curses include pursuit by enemies, verse 3, destruction, verse 4, judgment by fire, verses 5 and 14, agricultural disaster, first half of verse 7, loss to others of the fruit of one's labor, second half of verse 7, loss of nationhood, verse 10, return to Egypt, verse 13. All these packed into one chapter. And I tell you, there's lots of it in the other chapters of the book. And many of these predictions are just lifted from the curses and blessings which we can find that God promised earlier on in Israel's history. You can find them, for example, in Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy 28 to 30. For example, the punishment of returning to Egypt, which we see in the end of verse 13, is really a metaphor for captivity that God has already warned about in Deuteronomy 28, verse 68. Let's make no mistake, God will always fulfill all His promises. He promised the Israelites curses for disobedience, exile for idolatry, and that's exactly what happened. The Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC, and the Babylonians exiled the southern kingdom of Israel in 586 BC they all returned to Egypt just as God promised. And and these promises of 
blessings for obedience and punishment and curses and punishment for disobedience applies to us too, but with one difference. The curses emphasized in the New Testament are far worse than in the Old Testament. Some of us think that why does the old God of the Old Testament seem so much harsher and more judgmental than the God of the New Testament? But it's really the other way around. The, the curse of, in the Old Testament is physical exile, but the curse in the New Testament is spiritual exile, spiritual death. For example, Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death. For the people of God, Old Testament or New Testament, Obedience is the sphere in which we enjoy God's blessings. Obedience is the sphere in which we enjoy God's blessings. And disobedience will result in punishment and curses. On one hand, this should be a source of comfort for us that we can trust God to always keep His promises, that we can trust Him that He will take action against any wrongdoing on earth and that justice will be served. But on the other hand, for those of us who've had any struggle with sin, and we, and we learned this in Romans 7 at the YA retreat, this should push us to utter dependence on Christ and perhaps even despair. As the Israelites in Hosea illustrate for us, we are all inherently sinful and we'll always lose this battle with sin. And so on our own, left to our own devices, we're all destined to be cursed by God. And so we thank God that we're not left on our own. As Ollie and Eugene shared in previous sermons, amidst the harsh warnings of judgment in Hosea are tender promises of redemption. In the earlier chapters, Hosea tells us of a day when God will enter into an everlasting relationship with His people forever. A relationship based on righteousness and justice, steadfast love and mercy. Hosea points us to a day when God will send His Son to do what we can't do, to obey God perfectly, so that we can have the blessings only the Son deserves, and the Son takes on the curse that we deserve. As it says in Galatians 3 verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. At the cross, God doesn't forget His need for justice. Rather, God's justice and mercy are both satisfied at the same time. For those of us who have put our faith in God, the curse has been removed because Christ has taken a curse for us. And Christ has taken the curse for us so that we can have the blessings God promised to those who obey. The songs that we sang just now, Psalm 23, that the Lord is our shepherd, we sing that we can only sing that as God's people, with God as our shepherd, because Christ has taken the curse of sin for us. And we can have the blessings that only Christ deserves. And God also, Christ also took the, 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 the curse of sin for us so that we might receive the promised spirit, the promised spirit through faith, to empower us to walk in obedience. God's laws are not just there to tell us that we can't earn our way to a relationship with Him. They are there to tell us that now that we have a relationship with Him, what, are the, what the house rules are. Now that you're my child, how does He expect a child of His to walk? 
For those of us who have not put our faith in God, may I ask us to think about where we stand with God today. It is only through Christ that the curse of sin that weighs so heavily on us can be removed. If you have any questions, feel free to talk to the person, to the friend who brought you today, or to any of the elders, any of the pastors, or attend the seekers class that is going on. For those of us who have put our faith in Christ, would we respond this morning with thanksgiving and obedience to our man of sorrows, who was hanged on a tree, spilled his blood so that we can sing, we can boast that the curse of sin has no hold on us and that we have been set free. My friends, Christ has set us free from the curse of sin. And so would we say to sin this morning that enough is enough. Let's pray. Before I close us in prayer, I'd like to give us a moment or two. I, I realize that perhaps God has used this passage for you as He has for me to, to whisper into your ear, to target your heart about something that's going in your, on in your life. A sin you've tried to hide, a sin you've tried to deny was sin, or perhaps, honestly, a sin we didn't even know was there. Perhaps we thought it was the wise thing to do. Perhaps we thought that it was necessary to get the outcome we wanted. Or perhaps some of us are deep in the clutches of sin now and we... This sermon, God's Word, is just shining a light into that dark corner of our hearts. God already knows what's there. So let's... May I invite us to be honest with Him and to confess that sin to Him. As we're reflecting as well, may I encourage us, if there's a sin, it's not enough just to confess it to God. God wants us to repent, to turn around. So would we think about what God wants us to do to turn it around? To flee from it? To find someone that we can share it with? To apologize to the person we've sinned against or are still sinning against? Will we commit to that today? Mercy's robe, ring of grace, such favour undeserved. You sing over me and celebrate the rebel, now your child. Gracious God, we were all once rebels. Some of us are still rebels. We've sinned against you. We've given you flowers while cheating on you. We've broken your heart. And yet... You've sent your Son to lavish love upon us, to give us grace upon grace, to give us the blessings that we don't deserve. You sent Christ who cried out on that cross that He was handling, that He took the curse for us 
so that we, the undeserved, can boast that the curse of sin has no hold on us. Lord God, would you forgive us of our sins this morning? We thank you for calling to mind that one sin, that, that two, those two sins that we are still indulging in. Lord God, we thank you for that and ask that you would give us faith we do not have to trust that at your right hand are blessings forevermore, that there's nothing in this world that can give us more joy than walking the life that you've given us. And we also pray that as we sing our closing song, we would sing not just from our lips, but from our hearts, thanking you, praising you for sending our man of sorrows through whom we are redeemed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, let's rise as we respond to God's word. Worship, man of sorrows. Man of sorrows, Lamb of God, by His own betrayed the sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus laid silent as he stood accused beaten mocked and scorned bowing to the father's will he took a crown of thought oh that rugged cross my salvation So cries out, Hallelujah! Praise and honor run to Thee. Son of Heaven, God's own Son, to purchase and redeem and the very ones who nailed him to that tree. Hold oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, where your love poured out over me. Now my soul cries out, Sun sets free, always free. 
my debt is paid it is paid in full by the precious blood that my jesus spilled now the curse of sin has no hold on me whom the sun sets free oh is free my salvation where your love poured out over me now my soul cries out hallelujah praise and honor unto thee see the stone rolled away behold the empty tomb hallelujah god be praised he's risen from the dead oh that rugged cross my salvation soul cries out hallelujah praise and honor unto thee praise and honor unto thee all praise and honor be to the risen lord jesus who is not in a grave he lives we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you reign over all things. And right now, O oh God, you intercede for us, even in the presence of your Father. And we pray that to that end, as we, your people, leave this place, that we would walk in holiness, that we would say to sin, enough is enough. And so, Lord God, we ask that you would bless us by your Holy Spirit, enable us to walk in the righteousness that pleases you, and that we might know fellowship with you and one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. After a moment of quiet meditation, please do join us downstairs on the third floor for a time of fellowship. And uh, should you be so led, join us in the equipped class. We'll see you there.